Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This book isn't about fashion. Fashion is a way for me to speak about a bigger topic. This idea of sustainable fashion, it's been around for a long time, but for some reason, it's in the zeitgeist at the moment and it's transcending fashion. It's transcending business. It's everywhere we look. It's everywhere. So we need to break as consumers our habit of buying for the sake of buying, getting bored, tossing it treating clothes as disposable. There is this notion out there that our new generations care about this stuff, but when it comes to purchasing decisions, they're going to the same companies. Right. How do we change that? Well, that's why I wrote the book. Hello, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to Inside Fashion. This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with the very respected journalist and author Dana Thomas to discuss her new book, Fashionopolis. For the book, Dana has traveled all around the world going inside the fashion industry, trying to understand its impact on the people and the planet. And through her journey, she's found some harrowing stories, but also some optimism. She calls it a book for hope. So here's Dana Thomas, Inside Fashion. Good morning, Dana Thomas. Welcome to London and the Business of Fashion headquarters. Thank you for having me here. It's great. Um, There's a lot to discuss today. And your book, uh, your new book, uh, Fashionopolis, is making headlines. But before we dive into the details of the book, I thought it'd be good to kind of, you know, introduce you to our listeners from all around the world who are tuning into Inside Fashion. And just tell us a little bit about your career history. I mean, you've been a journalist covering the fashion industry for a long time, even before maybe there were real journalists covering fashion. So how did you get into this beat in the first place? 
It's funny. I was working at the Washington Post in Washington, and I was a news aide on the national desk. Mm -hmm. And I had been studying politics and history and and had this dream of becoming a White House correspondent so that I was the news aide on the national desk at a time when my, Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Isikoff and you know Gwen Ifill were correspondents on the national desk. I was just so excited. Was this in the Catherine Graham days? Definitely under Ben Bradley. I sat wow. right in front of Ben Bradley's office. Amazing. Loved Ben. And one day the fashion editor, the legendary fashion editor, Nina Hyde, needed a new assistant because her assistant was taking leave to do an internship. And she'd heard that I'd been a model in Paris when I was a teenager and spoke French and some Italian. And that probably, I was, you know, the only person in the newsroom who spoke some French and Italian, knew how to say and knew who Givenchy was. Right. Um, and so she tapped me and said, can you come work with me this summer as the assistant on the fashion desk? And I thought, okay, fine, that makes sense, and it's for the summer. But I still want to be a political correspondent. You wanted to be a serious journalist. I, I was. I I still am a serious journalist, right. but I wanted to cover the White House or Capitol Hill. I wanted to like you know cover the Pentagon. I was on that route, and that that was my my goal. And the first day I worked with her, it suddenly came together and made sense to me because I had always seen my modeling career as a way to fund my education to become a reporter. It never occurred to me that what I'd done in Paris and Milan as a teenager and in New York could actually feed into my journalism career and I could meld the two. I thought yeah, they so were, it wouldn't just help to finance it, it would inform it. It would inform it, it would be a core part of it. It wasn't right. like in its own box up on the shelf finished. And Nina was not the sort of fashion writer who wrote just about hemlines and you know, pink is the new black. She, because it was the Washington Post under Ben Bradley, did serious news writing and investigative pieces and also sent me out in the street to do street reporting, which was great. She'd say, you know, it's lunchtime. I want to know what women are wearing in the street. Take a notebook, go down and tell me and come back and write a story about the trends in Washington on the street when nobody was doing that kind mm -hmm. of work. She did a big investigative piece that I worked on about the bankruptcy of Christian Lacroix or how Christian Lacroix caused the bankruptcy of Patou. And Christian Lacroix getting sued and the found, founding of that company as it happened because the Patu family sued Christian Lacroix and LVMH for him leaving from one day to the next to go start his own company under LVMH. And she got all the legal documents in French and had somebody translate. I saw how you could take fashion and turn it into something that Woodward and Bernstein would look on and go, good job, you did a great job on that. Right. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I write about arts and I write about culture. I was the, I came to Paris because I married a Frenchman and I wrote for the Washington Post and I did features for the style section like I had been doing at Style for some time. I wrote about arts. I was the cultural correspondent for Newsweek for 15 years. But all along the way, I also covered fashion because I was in Paris. And Newsweek was thrilled to have somebody who knew how to write about fashion in Paris that helped the budget for travel. And it was at a time when the business was changing very quickly from family-run companies to global corporations. And I was documenting that as it was happening from a business standpoint. So what years was this approximately? The 90s. Yeah. Throughout the 90s and so early 2000s. So when LVMH was just starting to form, you know, PPR was just, had just started taking ownership of some of these Absolutely. brands. One of the very first pieces I helped Nina work on was a profile she was doing on Gianfranco Ferre 
when Bernard Arnault hired him for Dior. And right. I transcribed that whole interview for her. And it was such a turning point because that was the first time, you know, Bernard Arnault had just taken over Dior and then he had, you know, fired Mark Bowen, yeah. who had been there for 30 years and brought in this Italian ready to wear designer to, to do couture and what a scandal this was in Paris. So I learned that there was, you know, there was some meat, there was some grist. Nina considered the fashion beat as important as politics and business at the Washington Post. And I, I learned quickly that in fact, it is politics and business. It's everything. It's sociology. It's cultural anthropology. It's what it, you can look at through fashion and write a, and see and write about everything, the human condition. Mm -hmm. And I think I touch upon all of that in this book, yeah. business, the planet, the science, the human condition. Yeah, it's a very far-reaching book. You know, the first book of yours that I read was Deluxe, actually, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. And it just struck me as I was reading this one how you're covering a completely different part of the market. But, yeah. So talk to me about why did you decide to write Fashionopolis? You know, where, where did the an original idea come from? Well, it's interesting because I see it as a cousin to Deluxe. And in fact, yeah. Deluxe was came out of that reporting I was doing at Newsweek and the Washington Post in the 90s and early 2000s and that shift of the business from family owned to corporate global you know the 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 globalization of fashion and I always said that that book was about sacrificing integrity for the f sake of profits that's what happened and it wasn't about fashion I used fashion to tell a bigger story it's interesting the president of GM's wife came up to me and she said you know, my husband read this book. He saw I was reading it and he read it. And he said, this isn't a book about fashion. It's a book about commerce. I said, exactly. Right. So then I wrote the second book, Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, which for me was about the sacrificing of the creative for the sake of profits. And it's kind of a trilogy. And this is the third one in the trilogy. And it's about sacrificing the planet and humanity for the sake of profits. The idea of it came when I was on book tour for deluxe. And I met in the space of one afternoon, one day, three different people told me that they were reshoring business or keeping business in America, manufacturing. And the first one was Alex Bolen at Oscar, Oscar de la Renta. And he told me they had just bought the factory that made their evening gowns up in the Bronx. And he said, we really like having, knowing and having the factory just up the road so we can go up and see what's going on. And the family that owned it didn't want to stay in the business anymore, so they bought it to keep that manufacturing in the U.S. Later in the day, I met somebody from Brooks Brothers who told me that they were building and about to open this factory, which is well known now in Long Island City, to make their ties. And it was the first time they had brought manufacturing back to the United States or had manufacturing in the U.S. for years. And I said, hmm. And then I can't remember who the third one was, but there was a third one somewhere along the way that day. And I said- okay. They always say in fashion, three things is a trend, right? Right. And in news, three three things is a story. Right. So I said, right, there's something brewing here. So mm -hmm. I opened a file and put it on my desk. I wasn't ready to write a new book yet, but I just said, there's something here. And every time I saw anything about reshoring, I clipped it and threw it in the file. I was about, I was started working on the proposal and it was going to be more about reshoring than sustainability- when I first started it, when John had his meltdown at Dior, and I put it all aside and wrote that book because it just, I just knew those two. I realized that there was more there than just a story. And I had so much on file and, and spent so much time covering both 
Alexander McQueen and John Galliano's careers that it just seemed like something I should do. Mm-hmm. When I circled back around after finishing that book, and I still was putting things in this file that was sitting on my desk. Like whenever anything came up about reshoring, I clipped it and put it in. But then I also started noticing the trend about sustainability and often these two going hand in hand and the move, the slow fashion movement. So the file was getting thicker and broader as it was becoming a book basically with chapters of different ideas. And when I finished at promoting Gods and Kings, I sat down and started working on the proposal again. And it suddenly became very clear. And what was also very clear was when I first started working on it five years earlier, it was too soon. And I could see from reports, from stories, from trends happening that if I kept on this and I did it quickly enough, I would sort of, it would come out just as this was kind of peaking, which is what's happened. And everyone said, how did you know? And I said, well, that's what we do in news. We sort of try to see what's coming around the bend and then peg our story to it. It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, towards the end of last year, we hired our first sustainability correspondent here at BOF because the, this, the, the sustainability, you know, you, you mentioned, you called it a trend earlier, but you know, this idea of sustainable fashion it's has been around trip. for, yeah, it's been around for a long time, but for some reason it's in the zeitgeist at the moment yeah. and it's transcending fashion. It's transcending business. It's everywhere we it's look. It's everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I say this book isn't about fashion. It's a, fashion is a way for me to speak about a bigger topic because we all get dressed in the morning, we all have clothes in our closets. It's very easy to explain, you know, this is how your cotton shirt is made. And you look at the cotton shirt and you're like, oh, now I get it. Or this is how my blue jeans are made. Mm -hmm. It's much sexier, but it's also much more approachable than widgets. It doesn't require an MBA. It doesn't require an engineering degree. There are no graphs and diagrams in the book. You know, we have pictures of people picking cotton and making clothes. And I think everyone can relate to it. And I also think quite honestly, that most of us don't know how our clothes are made. Even the manufacturers aren't always very sure how the clothes are made. So I thought it's time to explain a bit like um, the omnivore's dilemma talks about food and fast food nation talks about fast food. I wanted to do the same that as they did, but about fashion. Mm-hmm. One of the things you argue in the book, which I think a lot of people also don't know, is just how many people work in the fashion industry around the world. So it's not, enormous. not only do we all get dressed every day, but I think it says one in six people in the world. Where did that stat come from? And how oh, did I you- I can't have, remember but, now. But, but, There's you, a footnote. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go look at the footnote, but it's an enormous number of people. Enormous. And you know, that is from cotton farmers to retailers. It's, it's the gamut. But it's more than agriculture and it's more than defense because it is such a broad reaching industry. It takes so much to make a jacket or a t-shirt or a pair of jeans and sell them and and get them to you in your closet. It is an enormous network. You know, I think one of the chapters is is called Field to Form. um, And somebody else calls it Dirt to Dress. You know, like I've heard all these really great sayings that sort of sum it up that, you know, it does go from dirt to your closet and that's a long path. It's, it's a $2.4 trillion industry today. And it wasn't that it's, you know, it's grown, grown six times in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a hundred or 500 billion in, 
in the late 80s, early 90s. In large part, that's because of fast fashion, you know, pushing and opening stores globally and just, you know, amping up production and amping up sales. And, you know, the fact that, you know, people go into Zara 17 times a year and come out with bags of clothes that the average garment today is worn seven times before it's thrown away. And in China, I was told it's three times, Mm -hmm. just showing the cycle going faster in production, sales, consumption. And then on, on the level, on that level of fast fashion and high street fashion, but also in luxury fashion, because luxury to compete or just to, you know, keep up, reset its cycle and cl- and clock to the fast fashion clock. So now, you know, there's, there's fashion weeks all the time and there are collections and drops all the time. And they want you to do the same as at Zara and come in the store as much as you can. And even if you buy one thing each time, you know, and if you come in five times a year, that's better than coming in once. And so the whole thing has just created this mountain of clothes, this volume, volume, volume. It's all about volume. And there's only so many places we can put the ones we're throwing away. And that's when I started investigating circularity, which has just bubbled forth while I was working on the book. Mm -hmm. One thing that hasn't changed in fashion that you argue in the book, however, is that it's always been an industry that employs, you know, a voiceless millions and millions of people. There's always been these hidden secrets of people toiling away in unacceptable conditions. Only 2% of the people who work in manufacturing of garments are paid a living wage. Only 2%. Yeah. And they're far flung. Now, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always the case. You know, globalization really changed the way everything was made. And I wanted to show that in the book. And the big shift came with the United States with NAFTA, the passage of NAFTA in the early 1990s, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that seed had been sown by Ronald Reagan back in 1979 when he declared his candidacy for president. And he said, I want to open the borders between Canada, the United States, and Mexico and make a free trade zone. A bit like Europe, except the difference is in Europe, we have Brussels overseeing everything and being a regulatory agency in a sense, telling us, you know, that you have to do, you have to respect this and that, you know, all butchers must do this, all cafes must do that, you must have handicap accessible restrooms, all that coming out of Brussels, the technocrats. We don't have that with NAFTA. It's just open borders. So that's the problem with the offshoring movement that came out of the NAFTA passage is that all these jobs, as Ross Perot predicted, with a giant sucking sound down to Mexico. But one of the reasons besides costs that they went to Mexico and why cost is so cheap in Mexico is because there's no oversight for safety and health restrictions. and and, and It's an unregulated labor market. Unregulated labor market. So they can charge nothing for the labor and it can be done in sweatshops. And that's when the sweatshop movement exploded again after it had been tamed down during the the New Deal in the 1930s with mm. Francis Perkins as labor secretary the Fair Labor Standards Act and the rest of that that and the and the rise of unions you know that the problems of things like the disasters like the Triangle Waste Factory fire of in the early 19, 1900s disappeared between the wars and it came back after NAFTA because all these jobs first went to Mexico 
and then down to the, the peninsula into Central America and then across the Pacific. And the, and the farther away they got, the less oversight there was, the less knowledge there was about, and the, and the supply chain became increasingly fractured to the point that no one knew where or how their clothes were being made. Mm. So you have this force of globalization and, you know, borders, you know, disappearing and, you know, unre unregulated labor markets and lack, lack of oversight over how clothes are being made. You have the rise of fast fashion and the speeding up of the delivery and drops of clothes and collections. And then you have technology. Technology. So talk about the role technology plays. Well, technology seems to be the hope. I call this book the book of hope. It starts out super downer. The first third of the chat, the first third of the book, you're going to come through and be like, oh my gosh, that's really bad. And when I talk about Rana Plaza and I talk about the 19th century, I talk about basically that all the problems we're complaining about right now were exactly what moved Florence Kelly in the late 19th century to come up with things like the white tag to tell you that your clothes were not made in sweatshops and, and weren't going to kill you because they were infected with tuberculosis. Um, too bad that didn't persist over all those years, right? The white tag yeah. or the tuberculosis? The white tag. <laughs> and so, yeah, the white tag. And maybe, you know, somebody can come up with the white tag again. So I call this the book of hope because in the last section, the future of clothes section of the book, we have technology stepping in and correcting many of the environmental as well as human rights infractions in the business. In when it comes to pollution, you have companies like Genealogia in Valencia, Spain, that have come up with a way to distress and wash denim that is far cleaner and safer, where they use lasers in a clean room, run from computers in another clean room, and there's vacuum systems that suck up all the dust, instead of like the factory I visited in Ho Chi Minh City, where folks were sanding and rasping the jeans by hand, not wearing masks, and inhaling all this dust, the indigo dust, the fibers, the cotton. And then it was 100 degrees and there were giant fans blowing it all around. It was insane. Yeah. And they do this all day long with these machines that sound like dentist drills. And lasers, it's clean, yeah. it's silent, it's air conditioned, it's effective, it's it's cost effective and it creates better jobs as well. These are jobs where you learn to run computers. You're not right. just sitting there sanding something. What about cotton? Well, which cotton, is another, you know, you talk a little bit in the book about organic cotton, but you know, whenever I've looked Sally Fox, yeah. the mother of organic cotton. Yeah. Organic cotton is so hard to come by, right? There's so little of it available in the market. And so I don't think, you know, you know, denim is actually made of cotton too, right? So like denim is one of the most problematic um, materials that we work with in the fashion industry because not Six only- Six billion pairs of jeans a year. Yeah. And one of the most common garments that anyone, you know, it's everyone wears jeans, right? So- At any given moment, half the planet is wearing denim. Right. So if every, if any given moment, half the planet is wearing denim and denim is made of cotton and denim is often treated and chemically- adapted and and, and, synthetic, and finished synthetic indigo which has things like cyanide and aniline right so like if denim and cotton combined together are such problematic um materials and are so commonly worn you know how what have you learned about the opportunity on the cotton side 
Well, it's really interesting. There, I learned a lot about cotton while working on this book. Um, 99% of our cotton today is genetically modified GMOs. And often it is treated with Roundup. It's called Roundup Ready, so that the seeds are Roundup Ready to be then sprayed with Roundup so you can control all of the weeds and pesticides. Is it a pesticide? It's a pesticide yeah. Roundup that's being banned in places. I think the state of California just bound, you know, got rid of Roundup because yeah. they said it's poisonous and it will kill you. Now, the organic cotton movement is not, is taking root, so to speak, but very s- slowly because through the GMOs and through, you know, manhandling, basically, chemical manhandling, there's a system has been developed where you can produce four times more cotton per acre. And cotton is paid by the yield. Because cotton is paid by the yield, if you can get four times more cotton out of your field, you're making more money. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the cow who's fed hormones to produce four times more milk. And then you have all the problems that go with a cow being milked four times as much, carrying four times more milk, you know, the weight of it, the the hormones in the milk. Well, cotton that's been manhandled to the point of producing four times more per plant causes big problems like it needs four times more water. That's why they say cotton is a thirsty plant. Cotton on its own, organic cotton, is not a thirsty plant. In fact, it needs to be stressed to blossom and do well. It's the it's the new cotton, the new genetically modified lab created cotton that's thirsty. And then all the chemicals that go on it to create, make it easy to harvest, to keep away the pests, all of it. It's dirty, 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 but it's productive. Mm-hmm. And and cotton, organic cotton has a hard time fighting against this. People say organic cotton is expensive. I feel like organic cotton would be like organic vegetables, that the more we have it, the price will go down in, in every regard, that farmers will not have to spend so much to grow it, and then the people will not, and consumers will not have to spend so much to buy it. Stella McCartney is a force behind this. She sources from some farmers in Egypt who have come up with some beautiful old um, organic lines of cotton that had had gone almost extinct, and they've they've brought them back. It's um, Egyptian cotton. She says, "I don't see why the whole luxury industry isn't only using organic cotton because it's not like we produce gigantic volume. We should, and it is." seen as a luxury. Why aren't we doing this? It does cost more now, but the more people use it, it will cost less and could eventually tip forward. And so we have organic cotton more than 1%, which it should be. Yeah. It should be. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. My friend Nina Morenzi, who runs this uh, company called The Sustainable Angle, she told me about hemp as being a great alternative to cotton. Yes, and I write about Nina and and her program in the book. She's terrific. Gosh, when I went to see all the cool fabric she had made out of all sorts of things like rhubarb and apple waste and pineapple waste, I thought this is this is the future of fashion. Exactly. The book of hope. Yeah. So uh hemp is definitely, I mean, <laughs> as the pot business keeps growing exactly. in America, we surely do have a lot of hemp hanging around right. to be used too. So I do feel like it it could be um it could be used more. I have a hemp bikini. It's very cool. And, 
I met some designers in Tennessee that were growing hemp and turning it into fabric for the fabric industry. Yeah. It goes state by state in the United States because of the pot laws. Right. And there are a lot of people who just say, you know, that's just pot in clothes. And it's like, well, no, actually it's not. Um, it could be, you know, part of the future of fashion. Also flax. I think we need to go back to like the big four, basically. Wool, cotton, silk, and flax. Flax is great. Flax can grow just about anywhere. It and does, it's not as thirsty. It's, it just lives, it's, rainwater keeps it going. It yeah. likes poor soil. It's like nearly impossible to kill. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a, and yes, linen wrinkles, but you can do linen silk blends. And with the silk that's coming out of Silicon Valley, which Stella McCartney has been behind, uh, Bolt Threads, part of the technology movement, is this company that's creating silk, spinning silk in laboratories out of DNA and grown in a lab. And it's called spider silk because it's using the same technology, basically, I guess you'd say, the same system for spinning silk that spiders do. Stella had the first dress made of it. She designed and had it produced and it was part of the exhibition at the MoMA two years ago is Fashion Modern. She then did a couple pieces for an exhibition at the VNA last year about sustainability and fashion. And she's working bolt thread silk into her collection. And it should be, there should be pieces pretty soon in the next year or so. And you could blend that with flax and then have a fabric that doesn't wrinkle on top of it. There, there are plenty of options of taking the old and the new. What I found with the book and doing the research, I learned so much anyway. But what I found, and I think this is the way forward, is taking old pre-industrial revolution ideas and practices and melding them with the digital age technology we have today, like blending silk grown in a lab and spun in a lab with flax from Belgium. There are all sorts of cool ways. You know, Natalie Channon in Florence, Alabama has her direct consumer company where she sells everything via the internet, but it's all made to order and handmade of organic cotton. So she's taking pre-industrial revolution practices of you know slow fashion, but then using the digital technology to get to consumers everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you call it the book of hope. And I think that's a really nice um, way to end your trilogy in a way, because the, the first two books weren't super hopeful, no. but it still makes me wonder, Dana, you know, a lot of the solutions presented, you know, especially the technology solutions are really exciting in terms of impact on the planet. But I still worry a lot about the impact on the people, you know, and, and, and it's this fast fashion consumption engine. And you know, honestly, consumers insatiable desire for new things that keep that system going so how do we address those two things how do we address the loss of jobs the loss of well not the loss of jobs necessarily at the beginning i mean the the cycle that continues to produce clothes that are still in a way many created by hand and will continue to be created by hand because as you've said one in six people in the world you know somehow is employed by fashion and then Secondly, how do we address the consumer appetite, which is to just constantly consume? If people are only wearing their garments on average seven times. And but this then, is a new pathology yeah. that was created because of fast fashion. Yeah. 
So how do we address those two things? Well, first with the loss of jobs, I, you know, that's the regular argument that's trotted out. Every time technology comes around, that's what people argued when Arkwright and created the water frame and opened the first factories in Manchester. It's not that there's a loss of jobs, it's a creation of different kinds of jobs. I mean, when they added robots to the lines in Detroit, yes, there was job loss of those kinds of basic jobs of putting widgets together because the robots were doing it, but then somebody had to build the robots, somebody had to design the robots, somebody had to run the robots. And that's what I saw with Genealogia, which is really interesting in, in Valencia. They have a school to teach workers to learn how to run the lasers and you become a laser laser technology specialist or they also have these machines that use that wash jeans with less water so it only uses one glass of water as opposed to gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water and that one glass of water is recycled so you need people to run those machines and that's what I saw in Vietnam when I went from the sweatshop that was doing everything by hand and in these big old washing machines with water everywhere and dye everywhere and everyone's hands black and it was just such a filthy scene to this clean, pristine, silent, air-conditioned factory filled with people who weren't strung out and weren't sick and they had good jobs and they had good paying jobs. A lot of people th argue that the garment industry is creating jobs for people in poverty and raising them out of poverty. I have been to Bangladesh. I have been to Vietnam. I have seen these people in the garment industry. And all we're doing is raising them from extreme poverty to poverty. We're not lifting them up to the middle class far, far, far but from it. But if you sat down with Kalpona Akhtar, who, who's who also I in love, your book, right? And who, who's just wonderful. She's amazing. She spoke at Voices last year. You know, she, we've gotten to know Kalpona. I mean, she's like, we need those jobs. They need the, they don't need those jobs. Well, we need jobs, they right? Need so how jobs. do you see you that happening in a jobs. place like Bangladesh? And that's where... the that's the difference. You need good jobs. Yeah. So if you have sobots in Bangladesh, you know, you need people to step in and fix them when when the sobots gone off track. You need people to run the sobots. And you're so you're basically giving them skills. You're you're creating a higher level of work and and you're creating and you have managers it's going to cost more to employ them and that's the resistance bangladesh manufacturers like paying workers 68 dollars a month they don't want to have to pay them 120 150 or 200 dollars a month because they're better skilled workers but that's how you raise them from poverty to the middle class somebody along the way has to take a hit in their profits the the garment industry, thus why I wrote this book, is a mirror of what we talk about in income inequality that is just ravaging society today, that you have a slim few, that 1% and that 0.1% who are just so wildly rich, they make the 1920s seem quaint. And then you have a broad, broad, you know, lower, low, lower class, not working class, but poverty around the world that just cannot get out of it because they're working for that uber rich who are just banking all the profits. My husband teased me when he read this and said, your book's a little bit Marxist, my dear. And I think it is. And you know, maybe it's time after unbridled capitalism in the unbridled age of globalization with this extraordinary wealth gap 
just growing wider every day, maybe it's time for a dose of Marxism. Maybe we need to go back to Engels and say, you know, this isn't right. And it's not right that Mr. Zara, Mr. Ortega, who owns Zara, is worth $68 billion a year, and he's paying those people to make those clothes how much? Pennies? Pennies? You know, that they don't want to invest in making the factories safer in Bangladesh or invest in their workers and giving them skills that actually are have value. Mm -hmm. They want to just keep these, you know, basically these human machines working like in Metropolis, the Fritz Lang movie that inspired the title for the book. So I'm super pro technology in the garment industry because I think it's going to make everybody live a better life as opposed to the, the system we have now where it's the haves and the have nots and the owners and they're not slaves, but they're not far above it. Um, and you do have indentured labor in the garment industry and you do have child labor in the industry and we don't, we should, this is a way to get rid of all of that. So when you talk to companies like Inditex or H&M or Primark or any of these companies that populate that part of the market where they are effectively preying upon these people to create clothes at prices which are just like if you, as you know, Lee Edelcourt, Exploitation. Came, yeah, Lee Edelcourt came to Voices in a first year and she said something that's just stuck in my head, which is like, you know, if you, if you can buy a t-shirt for less than the cost of a sandwich, what, who had to pay the price to Absolutely. make that t-shirt? That's what David Weil, you know, who was at the Department of Labor under Obama and is now the dean, a dean at Brandeis was saying, he said, there is no such thing as a bargain somewhere along the way someone paid the price. Exactly. So when you talk to those companies, and I'm sure you tried to talk to them for this book, what what's their reaction? It's, it's like no such comment. a simple argument. <laughs> they you know? just don't return phone calls. They were too busy to talk to you. Has there been any reaction from the company yeah. since your book has come out? No, but it's only been a week. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, when, when I reached out to Zara just to write about their pop-up store last fall here, we're too busy to talk to you. Okay. So, um, no, I mean, it's business as business is done. It's seen as it's seen in the business community as, as normal, as envious, as how it, you know, as the business model. One of the things I want to do is go speak at business schools and say, you know, maybe this isn't how business should be done. Yeah. Crunch the what I'd love, for example, at caring is the whole thing they've come up with the EPNL. Because it's not just crunching numbers to make more numbers, to make profits and looking at the numbers on paper and saying, you know, well, these workers are paid this much and then we can make this much money. But it's crunching numbers to see the impact on the planet. And then when you make those numbers better your profits get better too because it's mm. good business to be environmentally responsible. I would love to see an HPNL, a human profit, profit and loss. In the book, I have this wonderful moment where uh, Maria Cornejo of New York, the designer in downtown New York, says calls all of this the false economy. And she said, you know, I used to work for a major company that would fly me to Hong Kong where I was sent to nickel and dime manufacturers to save pennies on per sweater on the manufacturing line. But I was staying at the Mandarin Oriental and they flew me business class. How is this saving the company money? 
She said, you know, it's a false economy. Somewhere along the way, someone's paying the price. It's a false economy. And, you know, I think companies that start doing something like EP&Ls and an HP&L would actually find that this is better business. Hmm. So let's move to the other part of my my other my question, which was like on consumption. On consumption and our pathology, our addiction. You you say this is a new pathology, and I agree it is. It's an addiction. I see how I see I'm sitting right here in the reception of BOF, right? And this is a company where lots of our team are very aware of these topics. And every day I'm seeing packages from Zara and ASOS. And these are smart, informed, young people who care about these topics. But there is this notion out there that our new generations care about this stuff. But when it comes to purchasing decisions... They're going to the same companies. Right. How do we change that? Well, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> right there. Boom. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Because I feel like most people, even if they're somewhat informed, don't really realize um, the impact these companies have on the planet and on humanity. Just their practices. Not the companies themselves, but the practices across the board that our landfills are heaving with the clothes that we're chucking. We think we're giving them to Africa. Africa saying, no more, please. We don't want more. We, they passed yeah. a law to stop the import because it was decimating their industry. And, you know, o- the overflow is just relentless. And The Trump administration then started a tariff war with them saying, well, if you're going to ban our clothes, then we're going to, and bullied them into break, to, to retracting the law, except for Rwanda, good old Rwanda held firm. And they're paying for it because Trump is basically beating up on Rwanda to take, you know, old t-shirts and jeans and, and fast fashion from America. Once you start seeing the global picture, I think it will change consumption habits. More importantly, I think it will raise better fashion to an affordable level. That said, like a bit like the organic food movement, you know, when I I was living in Washington, D.C. in the early 90s, we didn't have a farmer's market in town. Last Sunday, I was in Washington, D.C., and the, there was a brilliant farmer's market three blocks from my old apartment. When I lived there, there was one farm-to-table restaurant. Now everything, you know, every time you turn around, there's a farm-to-table, that there are local farmers, that there's a whole movement. And and because of this, we now have Whole Foods, it's the most democratic, you know, the dem- democratization of organic food owned by Zara. But you can understand. So I'm hoping that will happen, Amazon, right? Which is owned by Amazon, yeah. so super democratic, right? Yeah. Not necessarily great, but democratic. Anybody has access. I'm hoping the same will happen in fashion, and when that does, then the price will drop. However, and this is a big however, we pay too little for our clothes. We do. I one my great aha moment in this book research was a piece I was reading from the New Yorker in 1940 by this wonderful writer named Lois Long about the one the, the extraordinary retailer of the time, Hattie Carnegie. During the Depression, when her big customers, who, mind you, in the, in the 1920s were paying between $800 and $3,000 for their luxury fashion, the wow. same prices we're paying today. In, in dollars at in that In dollars time. at that time, not adjusted for inflation and this and that. That's what they paid. 
And I said, I had no idea that that's what those those gowns cost. When you would take the Chanel or the Dior and have it made, you know, Hattie Carnegie would buy the pattern and then make it for you. It was between the same prices you pay today at Gucci and Dior and, and Chanel. That was the first aha. Like, wow, I keep hearing our clothes have never been so cheap. It's true. Even at the luxury level. Even at the luxury level. Then the other thing that came up was that she said, you know, after my customers lost their fortunes in the crash of 29, I came up with this middle market collection called Spectator Sport. Raymond Chandler referred to Spectator Sport in The Long Goodbye as the secretary special. And that's what secretaries bought. And it was just straight on, ready to wear, off the peg, classic suits. You think about Lauren Bacall in The Big Sleep when she's talking to Humphrey Bogart in that great snappy suit. That was a secretary special. And they would dress it up with a brooch or they'd wear it with a sweater and then they'd wear it with a blouse. They had one, they had two, right? They didn't have a whole closet full. And those suits sold for roughly $19.99, the same price you pay today at H&M and Zara. Now, how can we be paying $19.99 at the height of the Depression, the worst economic times in modern history, and still be paying today when we've never been wealthier? It's because prices really, they've never been this low. On a low. real basis. On a real basis. Ba- never just, been so yeah. low. And the difference is that back then, the secretary bought one or two, and now we buy 10. And then after we're bored of them. And then we toss them because they're disposable. Fast fashion has created this pathology. It's made us think, look at clothes as disposable. They weren't disposable before. We kept them. We repaired them. We resold them. We gave them to charity shops, and then they were sold at a decent price. But we kept them. We passed them on. We wore them for years. Think about closets. You live in London. You go into your flat. How big is your closet in a flat of one of those there's, pre-war? There's fl- definitely finite space, right? And in a pre-war flat, closets are full and bursting now. And, and it was in included. a pre-war flat, right? Yeah. Think about the Victorian and Edwardian era when those women were wearing bustles yeah. and had petticoats and all that stuff going on underneath the dress, and that was the size of the closet. That shows you how few clothes people had versus what we have today. Thus, going back to when I told you, $500 billion business 30 years ago. Two and a half trillion. Two and a half trillion today. So fundamentally. The volume. It's about volume on every scale. So we need to break, as consumers, our habit of buying for the sake of buying, getting bored, tossing it, treating clothes as disposable like fast food. So fundamentally, it is about consuming less like Cons- we can have and all consuming of these better yeah we can have all of these solutions we can have new fabrics we have better ways of you know farming cotton we can have you know s- silk spun in a and, laboratory we can have all of that but fundamentally you know buying we, better we need to buy better and buy less and cherish our clothes yeah. invest in them one of the people I spoke to for this book is Dillis Williams of the Center for Sustainable Fashion and mm-hmm. what she pointed out to me which was really important was that you know before everything went offshore, NAFTA or an offshoring and globalization, chances are you knew somebody somehow who made clothes. They were your cousin, your neighbor, somebody at school. They worked in a factory. They were a seamstress or a tailor. Or you went to a tailor. But you somehow knew somebody who made clothes. Maybe your grandmother made your clothes as a kid. 
Maybe your mother. My mother used to make my dresses. My grandmother made some of my clothes too. We knew people in the industry. We knew how to sew and we knew what it took to make clothes. But when, and therefore we appreciated them. But when it went offshore and we, and at the same time, we stopped teaching sewing in schools, like home ec classes were cut because of education costs and they just taught testing, testing, testing. We lost the connection to clothes. We stopped investing emotion into them. We didn't really care about them because we didn't know how they were made. We didn't know who made them. They were just things that passed through our lives. And that's why we could throw them away without any guilt and why we throw away so many. I mean, we should never throw away clothes. I'm sure Ellen MacArthur has talked about this and Bill Madonna Madonna talks about this with Cradle to Cradle and the whole circularity movement and that the linear, we, we shouldn't throw away clothes. There's, there's value in them. And we're, we've, we've forgotten that there's value in them and we need to start valuing them again. So what I say is don't spend $10 on something that for which the person who made it was paid probably a penny or two, 10 cents, right? To make it and get 10 of those things that you keep a short time and you toss and you worn two or three times, buy one for a hundred. Rewear. It's cool to rewear. I love Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle with the royal rewear. It's fantastic that, I mean, how many times has Kate Middleton trotted out that black or that dark green Alexander McQueen coat? How many times? It always looks great. And what she's saying each time she puts it on is, I love this coat. It looks good on me. It is well-made. It is worthy of keeping and rewearing. So I'm going to do it. Right. And, and it's okay. It's cool to be seen in the same thing more than once. Right. And it's okay if on Instagram with your friends, you take pictures and you're wearing the same outfit. It's okay. It's totally fine. And not even okay. It's cool. Right. Okay. Thank you, Dana. That was... Uh, really interesting and i'm you know congratulations on the book it's so thank you well researched you traveled to so many parts of the world <laughs> because the fashion industry is global and um yeah and thanks for stopping by today to, to chat with us i'm imran ahmed founder and ceo of the business of fashion that's all for inside fashion this week and we've gone deep inside fashion if you want to get dana's book i highly recommend it it's called Fashionopolis. And as Dana mentioned, it's only been out for a week. So you can be amongst the first to read it. I'm sure you'll find it as edifying as I did. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. For a limited time only, we are offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF Professional membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special code PODCAST2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did, and don't forget to share it with your friends. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S O. L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off.